Uh, this is from the Anglican divine Lancelot Andrews. O Lord, I am weary that my repentance is not deeper, is not fuller. Yet, Lord, I repent, help my unrepentance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I want to think with you about the inconvenience of God. The fact that our lives have been interrupted by a notoriously invasive truth, often an unpleasant truth. Think about what we're doing tonight. On Ash Wednesday, the people who wish to receive a death smudge, a gritty reminder of the fact that we're going to die and that we may even deserve it. That's inconvenient. And in fact, it's so inconvenient and so unpleasant that many churches are jettisoning it and replacing it with something else. Every year around Ash Wednesday, there's a new ecclesial fad to diminish some of the difficulty of Ash Wednesday. The newest fad is to replace ashes with glitter. It's like a thing that people are doing now or at least to provide options, ashes or glitter. So if you're feeling rather badly about yourself, you would opt for the ashes to demonstrate your penitence and your need before the Almighty. And if you're feeling like you need a healthful dose of affirmation, you would go for the glitter. I sympathize with glitter spirituality. It is infinitely less offensive, spiritually and psychologically more palatable, even useful, for building self-esteem. But Ash Wednesday and Lent do not cajole us toward that which is palatable. They do something much more helpful and honest. They lead us toward an inconvenient truth and, if you will, an inconvenient life. In the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus describes in his homily on the hill, Sermon on the Mount, uh, he describes three religious activities that could be perceived as quite inconvenient. The behaviors he describes are inconvenient, and the motivations for those behaviors, inconvenient. It's an inconvenient behavior, part of the religious life that Jesus, in fact, expects from his followers. It isn't so much if you fast or pray or give, it's when you fast, pray, or give. And he offers us these three behaviors. Verse 2, philanthropy, that is giving to those in need. Verse 5, prayer. And verse 16, fasting. All of them terribly inconvenient. Philanthropy is inconvenient. You know, you could use your money for just you, you know. That is a real possibility. You have debt. I will have debt until I'm, you know, 78, if, if my student loans continue to loom large, which they will. Uh, you, you have a mortgage, probably. You have rent. You may have children. They are not inexpensive. Uh, or you need to be saving for the future. And so, you, so it's really not practical for you to start giving generously. Uh, 
prayer is inconvenient, terribly inconvenient. Why would you ever do that? Cease being proactive and productive in order to ask an invisible deity for what you cannot secure for your own self? R really? Are you going to do that? What a blow to the ego, to, the self, to your own self-esteem, to think that you don't have the resources that you need within yourself. You didn't take any of those classes in high school that you were supposed to take to inform you of your innate greatness. But, um, uh, but it also is going to take you away from other people, according to what Jesus is saying here. You should do it in a closet by yourself. It's going to affect your social life. It's going to affect uh, your free time. You won't have as much of it if you pray as Jesus told you to. What about fasting? That's terribly inconvenient. Uh, abstaining from something, because fasting isn't the abstention from sin. That's just avoiding sin. Fasting is uh, uh, abstaining from something that isn't sin, not vice-ridden, but that may at times distract us from spiritual development. And if you, like me, uh, have uh, particular appetites for particular foods that you find particularly pleasant, appealing, and comforting, giving those up in order to have an existential focus isn't exactly cheery. It's inconvenient. Uh, with these demands, Jesus is deliberately depleting us. He's depleting us from our money, depleting us from our time and social lives, depleting us from material goods that may in fact be benign, even helpful. And so from one perspective, Christian practices are insolvent, impractical, and incomprehensible. We have in the person of Christ uh, someone who seems to want to take away the very things that we enjoy and make us feel comforted and secure. He wants to rob us of happiness. And if only it ended there, it just gets worse. Jesus also raises the moral market and requires what could be regarded as an inconvenient motivation for inconvenient behaviors. Jesus, as you may know, is highly critical of what could be called external affirmation syndrome. That is that the principal source of our worth is derived by how we are perceived by others. Jesus is not only concerned with actions. Remember, I have to sometimes remind people, particularly who are interested in philosophy, that uh, Jesus Christ and Aristotle are different. That was very funny, by the way. Um, Aristotle said, plot is character. If you want to know somebody, don't ask about their psychology, their hearts. Just look at what they do, and you'll be able to determine or judge their character. You are what you do. Jesus has a very, very different perspective than Aristotle, which ought not to surprise us, I guess. Uh, Jesus is not only concerned with the actions of religious people, even rightful or righteous actions, but the motives that produce them, because those motives will govern the ultimate veracity of the moral action or behavior. He says it repeatedly in this passage three times, don't be like hypocrites. Don't be like people who uh, live lives that lack integration so that 
they are a cardboard cutout of themselves. There's a cardboard cutout of them that is pleasant and smiling. But behind the cardboard cutout, they're doing something else that contradicts their profession. Don't be like a hypocrite, says it three times. And then more than that, he says, don't act in these ways. Don't adopt religious postures just to be seen. Don't do it to be seen. That is to gain a better assessment from the people whose respect you crave, like a drug. Do not take, in other words, says Jesus, a vertical behavior that is used for the purposes of God and make it all about you. In other words, the right action with the wrong heart transforms holy acts into blasphemous ones. For Jesus, motives matter. Motives matter. Uh, some have commented that they admire greatly the simplification of religion that is found in Islam. In Islam, there are uh, five pillars of religious expression, which include things like giving alms, going on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, the Christian critique of that, and I believe it's a right, rightful critique, is that, well, that's not good enough. It's not just about a checklist. If it were just about a checklist, uh, most of the people in this room could manage that. But Jesus raises the market of righteousness to the subconscious. It's now not just what you do. It's who you are. It's what's going on in the heart. It's, it's the way you feel about her. It's the resentment you hold in your soul about him. It's the lack of forgiveness that you're granting them. It's all of these hidden things that often go on under the smile of the Cheshire Cat. That's what's really going on. And that's what God has principal concern, that over which God has principal concern. Because actions are just an expression of a deeper reality. And so for Jesus, motives matter a great deal. And the motivational focus of Jesus Christ is entirely inconvenient. Entirely inconvenient. Because it leads us to scrutinize everything. I mean, if you take this seriously... The truth begins in the heart and is expressed outside and that you don't want to be a hypocrite and that you don't want to do things just to be seen, it will make you second-guess yourself a lot, or it should. And such discernment, rightly applied, can be exhausting. But it does have the power to purify our reasoning and our behavior. Because if the heart is dealt with, then the actions that flow from that renewed heart become good. For according to one Galilean rabbi, a good tree produces good fruit. And so Jesus is a very inconvenient Christ, offering very uh, inconvenient teachings that overthrow so many of our patterned and predictable strategies and designs. Yet accepting, the incon accepting inconvenience is not something that Jesus only preached it's something that he himself lived. It is the strategy of heaven. Consider the in incarnation, the long life of Jesus, the bitter experiences with family that he had when he was a young man, the complexity of relating to disciples who never seemed to understand. A grisly death where everyone left you and no one was there to hold you. Jesus himself accepted inconvenience as the way to life diminishment and disability as the way to, to uh, future thriving. 
Jesus uh, had an uncanny intelligence and awareness that uh, the right kind of inconvenience can bring life. The right kind of inconvenience can bring life. He saw us as sleepwalkers on our way off a cliff. And he had to inconvenience us in order to wake us to a place of mental sobriety and alertness. Inconvenience. Think about your own experience. Let's talk non-theologically just for a moment. Your own experience of interruption and inconvenience. You will know, always looking back, not at the present uh, nor at the future, but looking back, that some of the inconveniences that you've experienced in, in life have saved you. I think about my own, uh, my own experience in college when I met my wife. There I was, minding my own business. In my room, slightly dorky, uh, off the charts dorky, uh, uh, non-communicative, non-expressive, uh, angsty, alone. 19-year-old, in my room, doing some sketching. And this beautiful Italian young woman saw through the crack in the door to the drawing and said, what's that? And then came in and interrupted my, my solitude, my loneliness, with her own effervescence. I didn't plan on that. Wouldn't have requested it at the time, but looking back on it, one of the best moments in my whole life. Thank God for an interruption. Thank God for what some would regard as an inconvenience. Jesus knew that a godly and Godward inconvenience is an open gate. It's an open gate to a whole new way of perceiving and living. Giving money, praying and fasting. Three little examples. They don't create cash with God. I mean, if you've been to this church, you certainly know that by now, at least I hope you do. That our debts really were paid and not by you and not by me. But these things help us to live into the life that Jesus has purchased for us. They are ways of practically losing ourselves, of accepting diminishment and trusting that if we accept the inconvenience, accept the diminishment, then our Heavenly Father will reward what is done in secret. And that a new resurrected life will be ours. Because whatever you place into the hands of God will always be returned to you. But different, new, and far more beautiful than ever before. There's a story of a singular inconvenience that brought life to another person. It was... Uh, told in uh, USA Today, uh, several years ago in Florida, college athletes were visiting schools uh, as gestures of goodwill. Uh, Florida statewide receiver Travis Rudolph visited a middle school in Tallahassee, and he noticed a student sitting all by himself, the only student sitting by himself. That student's name was Bo Paskey, a sixth grader who had autism. Travis sat down with him and ate pizza with him and talked with Bo for the entire lunch period. Bo's mother later wrote about the experience. This is what she wrote. Now that I have a child starting middle school, I have feelings of anxiety for him. 
Sometimes I'm grateful for his autism. I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say. But in some ways, I think, I hope, it shields him. He doesn't seem to notice anymore when people stare at him as he flaps his hands around. He doesn't seem to notice that he doesn't get invited to birthday parties anymore. And he doesn't seem to mind if he eats lunch alone. It's one of my daily questions for him. Was there a time today that you felt sad? Who did you eat lunch with today? Most days it's nobody. Those are the days I feel sad for him. But he doesn't seem to mind. Anyway, a friend of mine sent this beautiful picture to me today with the caption, Travis Rudolph is eating lunch with your son! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. I replied, who is that? (laughs) They said, the FSU football player. And then I started to cry. I'm not sure exactly what made this kind of man share a lunch table with my son, but it will not soon be forgotten. This is one day I didn't have to worry if my sweet boy ate lunch alone because he sat across from someone who was a hero in his eyes. Travis, thank you. You made this mother exceedingly happy, and you have made us your personal fans for life. Well, thank God. Thank God for a Christ who has inconvenienced us, aiding us to embrace the life-giving path of God to our great and endless reward. Thankfully, he brings us not glitter, but glory. The Lenten invitation, from one perspective, is to waste your life. I encourage you to waste it. Waste your life in giving, prayer, fasting, and letting go. Uh, Embrace a life that the world regards as insolvent, impractical, incomprehensible. Embrace the inconvenient Christ and live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.